It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Marisa about mast cell activation syndrome. This was a really special conversation for me, not only because I also have mast cell activation syndrome, but because Marisa is someone that I've known for about 10 years here in Seattle. She used to be the assistant manager of an apartment building that I lived in. Back when we met, our health issues were not really overtaking our lives the way that they have since then. So it was really gratifying for me to get to sit down with Marisa and have this really great conversation about our shared disease, which is something I'm still not used to being able to say that I can do because I haven't had a diagnosis for that long. Longtime podcast listeners may recognize a naming convention that I use to name episodes on this show, which is living with dot, 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 you know, fill in the blank with whatever disease we're covering that week. And this episode is called living with mast cell activation syndrome. I've been doing that since the very beginning of the show because my thought process is that I'm trying to create something for the people living with the disease. A conversation between real human beings who have their disease to give them a sense of not being alone in their diagnosis. And even though we've covered mast cell activation several times, including my own diagnosis episode, there has not yet been an episode titled Living with Mast Cell Activation Syndrome. And this one really was crying out for that title because it's got so many amazing practical tips. I did a little bit of research about when was mast cell activation first diagnosed. And the answer I came up with was 2007. I'm not sure if that's correct or not, but that's what I found when I was doing a little bit of digging. And Marisa was diagnosed in 2016. Once a diagnosis is first published in the literature, it takes a long time for it to sort of trickle down to become common knowledge. And that still has not happened for mast cell activation in 2024. It is not common knowledge among a lot of medical practitioners. And even if a lot of people have heard about it, they don't actually understand it. The reason I bring that up is to say that Marisa has a huge amount of experience living with this diagnosis. She was diagnosed almost a decade ago when the diagnosis itself was less than 10 years old. And as someone also diagnosed with that disease, I found it so incredibly helpful to hear about her experience. At one point in this conversation, we just start comparing our regimen, our medication regimen, both naturopathic and prescription. If you don't have mast cell activation and that doesn't interest you, I totally understand if you want to skip through it. But for me, it was so incredibly helpful. Marisa has some sensitivities I've never even heard of before like having a hard time digesting oxalates and sulfurs. She works with a nutritionist who specializes in mast cell disorders. So her diet has gone into a level of detail I didn't even know existed. I'm really excited about this episode. I had so much fun talking to Marisa. She did a really great job on the podcast today, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. Last week on the podcast, we did something a little bit different. I shared an interview where I was actually interviewed by Andrea Dunn during her rheumatoid arthritis summit, and we got a couple of comments on the website about this episode. Morgan comments, a wonderful listen, which I really appreciated. Thank you so much, Morgan. Laura James comments, I'm so sorry you're dealing with so much and hope you not only find answers, but relief. I've been fighting for 23 years now. Organizations that shouldn't be dictating how your physician treats you has caused tremendous tragedies. I lost my job, marriage. It's hard to hang out with my six kids. So when I say I totally understand, I totally understand. I wish the best for you. 
Laura, thank you for your comment. It's so true that the bureaucracy of the medical system can interfere in our lives in ways that make no sense and can make it feel so difficult to live. So, Laura, I appreciate you sharing that piece of your story with us. We also got some comments on this episode on social media over on Instagram. Our friend Chris Coates comments, I really enjoyed this interview and had a record scratch moment when you mentioned right-sided arm and leg pain. I think I am following your MCAS journey, Jesse. Chris, thank you for your comment. Always good to hear from you. That is so interesting. The right-sided pain is something that I still don't really have a handle on. I'm still having, you know, pain in my right temple, pain in my right foot, sometimes pain in my right arm. None of my MCAS doctors have been able to explain that to me. They don't really quite understand it. They think it might be unrelated, but I'm not convinced because when I flare up, those pains get worse. And you know, we're covering MCAS again today. So hopefully there will be MCAS patients listening to this. Maybe if any of you have any idea about one-sided pain with MCAS, shoot me an email, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any ideas, I'd love to hear from you. I posted a couple of clips from this episode on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. There's some really fun conversation on those clips, but one comment I really wanted to point out This is from Summer Magic. It says, you inspired me to go for disability. And that just made me really happy because in the episode, I talked about how, you know, if you have a mystery illness, a chronic illness, you may not think to apply for disability right away, but I feel like go for it. Go for it right away. I waited for years to apply for disability and then it took years to win my case. I did get back pay for 12 months before applying. So I ended up getting three years of back pay all at once. And there were many times when I wished I had known I could have applied for disability sooner. And like I said last week, disability lawyers generally do not charge you unless they win your case. They take their fee out of your back pay. So that was just such a massive victory to finally win my disability case. And now having a little bit of financial security for the first time in about seven years, it's really life-changing. Plus this intense, incredible validation of having a judge look at my medical history and say, yes, this guy deserves to be on disability. I'm still spinning from that victory. I waited to apply for years because I didn't think I could afford it. But like I just said, that's not really an issue for most lawyers. So if you're struggling, if you're unable to work because of your health, apply for disability. Now that I have a diagnosis and my health is improving, it's definitely still a really rocky road. You know, as we'll talk about today with Marisa, MCAS is just so unpredictable. I've been up and down a lot recently. I'm really trying to figure this thing out. You know, (laughs) I'm working really hard right now on the physical aspect of living with MCAS. And by that, I mean, you know, exercise can actually trigger a flare up. So I'm doing a lot of experimentation. I'm trying to figure out what type of exercise makes me flare, what type and for how long. And I keep doing too much and getting sick for a day or two at a time. It's so incredibly frustrating. Actually, the day that I recorded with Marisa, I had gone for a jog, like a 20-minute jog earlier in the day, and then I got hit with this wave of super intense dizziness. And by the time I was done recording with Marisa, I was out for about 48 hours, just on my back, super sick. And it's so unfair because it feels like, you know, I'm exercising, I'm doing the thing that should make me feel better, and then it makes me feel so sick. After I recovered from that flare-up, I actually tried going to a gym and swimming in a pool. (laughs) I I really like swimming. You know, I've had a, a couple opportunities recently on family trips to go swimming, and I always end up doing laps and feeling really good and thinking, hey, maybe this is a good low impact exercise for me to do. So I have this gym membership. I'm actually so lucky 
like 15 years ago, 24 Hour Fitness did this promotion where you could get a gym membership for $29 a year for life. And I have one of those and I've been paying $29 a year to renew my gym membership and never go to the gym. I hadn't been to a gym in like seven years, at least seven years from before my flare up started and I had to leave work. But I, I just realized, hey, I have a gym membership. Let's try going swimming at a pool. So I did that yesterday and I've been feeling terrible today. It's so frustrating. It's like I want to be able to use my body and not get sick. That's the big piece that I still haven't figured out. On top of that, all of my research indicates that having a good physical regimen for your body can actually help to stabilize your mast cells. In my experience, if I can get across this hump where I've been exercising several days in a row and feeling sick, then I'll slowly feel less and less sick and then start to feel pretty good. And again, if, you, if you're listening to this, if you have MCAS, if you have ideas, please let me know. Earlier in 2023, I felt like I'd finally figured this thing out. I talked to my doctor about this problem. I said, hey, when I exercise, I'm getting sick, sometimes for days at a time after. And my first MCAS doctor recommended that I try Montelicast, which is a medication I still take. I felt like once my body adjusted to being on that medication, I could exercise and not get sick. And it had just started to work. And then I got COVID and then it stopped working. <laughs> and ever since then, it's been, you know, seven months, six, seven months since I had COVID. I haven't been able to exercise without getting sick. There's been a couple days where I did something really light. You know, I'll force myself to only do 10 minutes of exercise and then I feel okay. So logically, I feel like what I need to do is just start with 10 minutes of exercise a day and work up from there. But it's just impossible to know when I'm crossing the line that's going to make me sick. Because I'll just be, you know, swimming in a pool. I'm swimming for 20 minutes, feel good. I start to get a little tired. I stop. And then like six, seven hours later, sometimes even, you know, 12 hours later, I'll get really sick and it'll take 24 to 48 hours for me to recover. My research has indicated that low impact exercises are safer. So something like swimming or yoga is a better option than something like jogging. Higher impact exercises are more likely to cause a mast cell activation flare up. But obviously my research hasn't solved this problem because I'm still really in the midst of this. You know, it's 4.30 p.m. right now and I'm just getting to work on the podcast because I've been resting all morning from swimming yesterday for 20 minutes. So frustrating. I'm so mad. <laughs> and I'd love your help. So please, again, write to me, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. As I mentioned at the beginning of every week on the podcast, this podcast really needs your support, and there's some great ways that you can support the show. One of them is through our affiliate links, and we now have three affiliate links, links that you can click to support this podcast while supporting your own health. The original, the one we've had for a long time, is Rare Patient Voice, such an incredible program where you can be paid an average of $120 per hour for your time if you participate in research studies and surveys rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. We got a new one last week that I mentioned, my new Amazon shop, where I am listing all the products that I use for mast cell activation syndrome, the naturopathic products that are available on Amazon. I put together a shopping list. If you click on any of those links, if you purchase anything from my list, I will get a commission. So that's another great way to support the show. You can find that at amazon.com slash shop slash majorpainpodcast. And this week we have a brand new affiliate link, a brand new partnership that I'm so excited about with NeuraHealth. NeuraHealth is an online neurology clinic that offers expert neurological care without the wait. You can book a visit with a board certified neurologist within days. 
Conditions they specialize in are headache and migraine, sleep, seizures, concussions or TBI, traumatic brain injury, and a whole list of other conditions. One of the worst parts about living with a chronic illness, a disability, a mystery illness, is waiting for appointments. And neurology appointments can be some of the longest waits out there. And for some reason, gastroenterologists, I still haven't gotten an appointment from a, from a referral put in like a year ago. So anyway, <laughs> but this is a really cool company doing amazing work. We have a brand new partnership with NeuraHealth. You can head to neurahealth.co slash major pain to check it out, learn more about NeuraHealth and see if it's right for you. Other great ways to support the podcast include leaving us a positive rating and review wherever you listen to our show, sharing the show with a friend or in a group that you're a part of, any sort of chronic illness or disability groups, and of course, supporting the show with monthly financial contributions on Patreon, where you will also gain access to monthly bonus episodes with myself and my partner, Andy. These episodes are always so much fun. We have a big back catalog of bonus episodes now. And of course, there are also special gifts. We have Major Pain coasters and Major Pain tote bags made by my mom, as well as special recognition on the podcast. There are different levels of support for the different tiers of financial contribution. You can find all of this on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting this show at the highest tier of $25 per month, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. I'm absolutely amazed by your long-term support of the podcast. It means so much. It really keeps the show going. I have been struggling a little bit with time management recently. Since I'm doing a little bit better, I've taken on some work, which is really exciting. And because I haven't really worked in you know six or seven years, I really need to prioritize making some money for the first time in a really long time. But I really want to keep prioritizing the podcast. And the best way to make sure that that can happen is by supporting the show in one of the many ways I just talked about. Major Pain is nothing without the people that come on the show and share their stories and the audience interacting, engaging with, and supporting this podcast. Thank you all so much for being a part of this incredible journey that we've gone on together. And I really want to keep this going for as long as possible. I am reaching the point where I'm realizing I'm going to need help. I'm going to need to hire some help for the podcast. So I really need to be monetizing the show more effectively than I have been, getting new patrons, reaching new listeners, building on all of these affiliate links. All of these things are going to be so important to keep the show going. So I hope you'll check out at least one of these ways to support the show. There are links in the show notes of every episode. I'll remind you as always that my guest and I are not medical professionals. Please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And that's doubly true for mast cell activation syndrome because everyone's body is so different and the thing that helps me might hurt you. So we do talk a lot in detail about prescriptions, medications, supplements. And if you're going to wade into trying any of these things, you do so at your own risk. You need to talk to a doctor before doing so. And with that, we'll jump into our fantastic conversation with Marisa about mast cell activation syndrome. Marisa, welcome to the podcast. Hi. I'm so excited to talk to you today. You're someone I actually know in real life. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we met, oh my God, how long ago? Well... It was like 2013, I think. Yeah. You were the manager of a building that I yeah. lived in. 
Yeah. <laughs> that was actually my first job in property management. Wow. You yeah. started as a manager? Well, I was technically the assistant manager, to be fair, but I was basically the acting manager because I was there by myself a lot. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I loved living there. And I also was a uh, working as a leasing agent at, you know, in property management at a different building. Okay. But yeah, that was a brand new building, Barkley mm-hmm. Broadway. Mm-hmm. And I was the first person to live in my unit in that building, which was so fun for me. I'd never lived yeah. in a brand new a apartment brand new before. Yeah. 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 That was my first job in, in property management. Yeah. That's impressive. I kind of lucked out. And, you know, I was like bouncing from building to building because I, I needed to live in new places for my allergy situations, mm-hmm. which I didn't know at the time was from mast cell activation, which was why I was getting sick in older buildings. Yeah. But I just knew that I had to live in newer buildings. And there's this great program in Seattle called the MFTE program, yeah. multifamily tax exemption. Multifamily yeah. Yeah. So people could get a rent discount if they were under a certain income threshold. And I qualified. So I would just, you know, bounce around to new buildings that had this program going on. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's how I was able to live for years. It's such a cool program. It is a great program. Yeah, it's an awesome program. So I'm so glad you were able to get, to take advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually why I started uh, leasing is because then I get a rent discount and li- I, it opened up the options of where I could live. I lived mm-hmm. all over the place my first few years in Seattle. Yeah. But then we were just talking like, when's the last time we saw each other? And we think it was when I was hosting the Star Trek party at the Mopop Museum of Pop Culture it was the yeah. opening of a Star Trek exhibit, and I was hired as the host because I was doing a sci-fi podcast back then. One of the gl- most glorious nights of my life. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty awesome, I have to say, and I, I was so I was so like excited. It was I didn't expect to see you there, and I was like, oh my gosh, Jesse's hosting, and then I was like, of course he is. <laughs> like, <laughs> it just made total sense to me that you were the MC. So, oh man, that was a real dream situation for me. I got to meet Brent Spiner, who played. Oh data on next generation that's so cool yeah what a great night i i had so much fun and it's like it feels like another life ago because since then my health flared up and Mm -hmm. i would never be able to take on a job like that where it's like yeah i can guarantee you that i will be at this event Uh, yeah me too yeah yeah well i'm I'm really excited to hear your story because i don't know a lot of it you know we've been in touch over the years we've message back and forth a few times. I know that you're going through some similar health challenges to what I've been through, but I don't know the whole story. We're going to get to it in just a couple minutes. Let's get to know you a little bit first. Okay. So Marisa, why don't you tell us about yourself? Yeah. So my name is Marisa and um, I'm born and raised in Seattle area. I come from a performing arts background. That's what I went to school for, what I trained for. I have a degree in voice. I also study acting and dance pretty extensively. And at one point in my life, that's what I wanted to make my career out of. But, you know, sometimes life has a funny way of taking you places you don't expect. (laughs) Um, And so I did end up working also in multifamily property management and, um, and still working, doing performing arts stuff on the side, mostly singing singing jobs but you know kind of with my health and then with the pandemic you know that part of my life has sort of been uh shelved for the moment uh i still still keep up singing like in my home and stuff like that just to kind of keep it up but it's hard when you're sick a lot <laughs> absolutely <laughs> to keep up other things so and then also with just being immunocompromised and covid has made things a lot 
more difficult for me to sort of get out and do things and feel safe doing those things. Even if it wasn't for COVID, just with my health challenges, like you, you said, sometimes you just, you can't plan, you know, you can't necessarily commit the way you, you used to, because you can't say, oh, yes, absolutely. I will be there on this date at this time and everything will be ready and everything will be, you know, uh, the way it needs to be because I could wake up that morning and have a migraine or have a flare of some kind or, you know, have an allergic reaction and, you know, yeah. so you just don't know, but, um, but yeah, so, uh, but, but that's kind of my thing is, is <laughs> performing art stuff. You know, I've kind of tried to like take my creativity in other ways since I've been more like homebound and getting into doing more like crafty stuff. And like, I have house plants and <laughs> stuff like that. So uh, and trying to keep up with friends. I mean, I'm so thankful for all of this like virtual technology and like Marco Polo and messaging and everything because it helps me to be able to like have face-to-face conversations with people that are important to me without having to be in the same room as them. So that's that's important to me too. So um, I do still work in property management, but I'm not on site anymore. I'm an administrative assistant to a regional vice president for a local property management company. So I'm like on the corporate side of things now in what we would call our home office, but I do work remotely, which is, is really nice. So it's kind of, kind of what I'm doing now. So I do really appreciate having had experience working on site for so many years and now doing this because I'm supporting people that are still on site. So it's like, they know that I know what they're going through because I've been there, you know, I've been a manager, I've been doing what they're doing. And so they, they trust that I have their back and I understand where they're coming from. Yeah. When I was working in leasing, there was a big disconnect between what the corporate office thought was happening on site and what was happening on site. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it, I, I also felt like working as a leasing agent, there was this element of being on stage that sort of satisfied my yeah. creative side a little bit, which is why I really like doing that job. It's like, yeah, you're putting on a performance. Someone walks in the door and you are trying to help them rent an apartment yeah. and it becomes the leasing show. <laughs> yeah, the leasing show. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Okay. So I saw you at the Star Trek exhibit. So obviously you have some interest in Star Trek. And that, that's something I'm dying to ask you. What is your sort of nerdy side? So I, I do have my own interest too, but the person I was with at the time who was also heavily mm. interested in Star Trek. And so okay. we were like, let's go. I did grow up. I'm not with him anymore, but I did grow up watching Star Trek. Like my mom was like a Star Trek fan from day one. Like she grew up watching the original Star Trek, you know, in the sixties. And then, you know, when next generation came out, she watched that. And then when each successive series came out, it was always on in my house. So I grew up watching Star Trek and, you know, other sci-fi too, um, like Stargate SG-1. I always mm. really loved that, well, I love show. that I've seen every That's episode of that. Like, uh, to be perfectly honest, I, I, it's, I probably love Stargate a little more than Star Trek, but I do deeply admire Star Trek. Yeah. So yeah, it's just kind of always part of my life. Just Star Trek was just there, you know, partly because of my mom and growing up with it in my, in my home. But yeah, so I watched all the series as they came out while I was growing up. Like, it's been just part of the fabric of my life. When you say you have your own interests, is Stargate the top of that pile? What's the top of your nerd pile? 
Top of my nerd pile for sci-fi is probably Stargate, though I was and I still have a very dear place in my heart for Battlestar Galactica. Okay, like I'm yeah. deep into Battlestar Galactica. And like when the exhibit came to Mopop when it was in town, like I went by myself. I was like, <laughs> I don't care. I'm going to go and nerd out to my heart's content at this Battlestar Galactica exhi- exhibit. So um, so I do have a, a love for, for sci-fi. Like, as far as, like, a, a rewatch comfort show, though, like, Stargate would be my go-to for, for something like that. Because I like that it's both kind of action and this really creative sci-fi universe, but it's also got this comedic side to it. So it's kind of, like, dramatic and lighthearted at the same time. And I think Star Trek has that to a certain extent, too, obviously. So they've it's very very sophisticated and in its own way. Yeah. But Stargate takes it to the next level. It's so campy and so funny. It does not take itself seriously. It's, it does in the beginning and it does like in the last couple seasons, which is very interesting, but Mm -hmm. the Stargate SG one just completely stops taking itself seriously. It's like when you get to like season six and seven, it's just so funny and so good. That's to me, the pinnacle of that show. I think like seasons five, six and seven were just, I agree. I mean, I love it all, but like, yeah, when they finally dialed into that place, it was just, it's just gold. It's just gold. Like, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. There's incredible performances, great characters. I love that show. It's been a long time since I watched it. I did a full watch through, including Atlantis and, uh, uh, Stargate universe. Yeah. And yeah. I loved them all. I, I, Universe got so good in second season, and Did I was so it? bummed. Okay. It, yeah. I I had a hard time at Stargate Universe be- getting into it because it came right at the end of Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. and I was so into Battlestar Galactica, and I was also like I said, so appreciative of Stargate issue one. And then I felt like they tried to turn Stargate into Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> yeah. and I got so offended. I was like, "No, you're ruining both of them." I was like, "I can't." It's that's so true. The first few episodes of Stargate Universe are a very deliberate attempt to recapture yeah. the tone, like the serious yeah. tone of Battlestar Galactica, and it yeah. did really frustrate me as well. It definitely gets its own character, and it was only mm-hmm. on for two seasons, but okay. it definitely like finds its footing and finds its voice and gets so good. I, you know, for me, mm-hmm. I struggled a little bit with season one, but season two was awesome. And I was so bummed it was canceled. Well, maybe I'll have to go back and give it another chance. I just couldn't get past it at the time. I was yeah. like, <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth it for sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm like deep in sci-fi all the time. I'm reading through Dune right now. I'm, I just started book four a couple of days ago and I'm just in love with it it's so good so far yeah that's one of those ones that's always been like on my list and i haven't quite gotten into it yet but i i mean i hear such good things about it and it looks like such an excellent universe so i'm it's kind of next on my on my list yeah it's really worth it we had a recent podcast guest griff who's really into dune so i've been texting with him a little bit like this is what i'm reading right now (laughs) it's so fun to like connect with somebody like about the thing that you're nerding out at the time but they also know about it like yeah totally absolutely um okay i could talk nerd all day but we got to get into your story so marisa what is your major pain oh i got a list Um, probably the major underlying kind of overarching issue is mast cell activation syndrome. Wow. Um, and with that has also come postural orthostatic tachycardia. Before I was diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome, though, I, I'm also dealing with some 
suspected, though not yet fully diagnosed, endometriosis and its mm-hmm. evil twin, interstitial cystitis. And before, I, also before I was uh, fully diagnosed with muscle activation syndrome, I kind of had like fibromyalgia as a possibility. But really, I think it's it's mast cell activation syndrome causing chronic pain and, and inflammation. So yeah, I haven't fully explored this. I don't know if it's small fiber neuropathy or what it is, but I do have a lot of nerve pain too. It's not joint and nerve pain. So uh, I'm not entirely sure what the mechanism there that's going on yet, but I do live with a lot of chronic pain as well. So, well, I mean, we're right in my wheelhouse. I just got diagnosed with mast cell activation halfway through 2023. Um, yeah. I've been on the treatment for a year and it's completely changed my life. So I'm really eager to talk to you about this. It, this is just unbelievable to me that someone that I have encountered in my life yeah. outside of this podcast, someone that I met 10 years ago yeah. also has my disease. Like that's unbelievable. Cause you know, yeah. I just knew nobody going through anything similar yeah. to me <laughs> at all. And Mm -hmm. I'm still not used to it, hosting this podcast, like talking to other people with my own disease. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm still not used to having a diagnosis. I just went undiagnosed so long. But it's, I mean, even just hearing you say, oh, I have mast cell activation, like for some reason that still just gives me chills because I'm like, wow, me too. (laughs) Like I killed one of my people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Ah, so weird. Okay, let's talk symptoms first. What is the symptom picture for you? What are you experiencing on a daily basis? Yeah. So, um, besides, like I mentioned already a lot of chronic pain, um, like I'm just in pain all the time in various levels. It's kind of like it's on a volume, uh, dial. And sometimes mm-hmm. the volume's a little lower. Sometimes it gets turned up. I deal with a lot of allergic symptoms too. I've had anaphylaxis a few, a few times, wow. a couple of times resulted in ER visits, um, and, and, an anaphylactic incident was actually what triggered postural orthostatic tachycardia for me too. Your mast cells do a lot of things. <laughs> and so, you know, when they flare up, it, you know, it has neurological effects as I, I know you're aware, it has all kinds of things that it sort of messes with. And a lot of the most bothersome ones for me tend to be more allergic symptoms or neurological symptoms pain and stuff like that. So um, a lot of it is trying to not have an allergic reaction for me. So are there like certain substances that you react to? Are there what what are your triggers? Yeah, it <laughs> it's interesting. There's a little bit of a before and after for me. I was already living with it and diagnosed and dealing with it. But then in early 2020, I had um, an anaphylactic incident that sent me to the ER. And that was kind of like a, a turning point for me. And I've been slowly recovering from all of that ever since for the last like four years of just trying to get my nervous system to like calm down again and not treat everything like it's mm. an assault yep. on my body. I have had allergic reactions to the smell of something yeah. like it's it's insane. The things I didn't react to before. Before that, though, like I, I would react to the smell of things that I'm actually allergic to. Like I found out I'm actually like legit allergic to coffee. <laughs> mm. And so like before when I was working like in the corporate office, it was an open air office. And so it's like if somebody had a cup of coffee, it was like I could smell it. And wow. I was starting to have a lot of problems being in our corporate office because I was exposed to all of these smells and it was supposed to be a scent-free office, but if somebody was wearing perfume or scented lotion or whatever, you know, like all this stuff, like I, I react to fragrances and cough, smell of coffee, stuff like that. 
Um, and that actually, um, that, that incident in 2020 was what allowed me to be able to work from home full time as a reasonable accommodation. But then it also turned out it coincided with the pandemic and everybody was working from home, (laughs) which in a way kind of made it easier for me. Um, And thankfully the company I worked for at, at at a certain point was just like anybody that wants to keep working from home can work from home. Mm. So it also made me feel less like singled out because it's something that a lot of people in my office are doing. So yeah. it's, it's less, it feels like it's less obviously about me having a disability and needing this as a reasonable accommodation and just something that our company does, which is nice. Wow. So my company has been really awesome um, about that, but I've been on like a low histamine diet for years and like having to learn what that is and how that works and how that works for me on any given day. <laughs> um, and also like learning what my body's having a hard time processing because my body has a hard time processing oxalates and sulfur sometimes. Um, so, you know, foods that are high in that can sometimes sort of send me over and uh, into not good places, but I actually work with a really great dietitian nutritionist who specializes in histamine disorders and mass activation syndrome. Like that's her whole thing. And she has been a lifesaver. Like I can tell her, this is what's happening. And she'd be like, okay, it sounds like your body's having a hard time with this. And she's like, let's try this supplement or whatever. And like, that's the thing that helps me be able to eat those foods again. So it's a lot of just kind of listening to my body and it telling me where it's at and what I can handle and what I can't. And obviously I want to not have as much pain. I want to not be as fatigued, but like, ultimately, if I can keep myself from having anaphylaxis, yeah. <laughs> like, that's the big one because that's traumatic and it's terrifying and people don't always understand what's happening to you when it's happening because it doesn't always present typically. Mm-hmm. And it's also one of those situations like that meme, like I know more than you. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, know, you, have, you have an EMT or somebody coming at you that has no idea what your condition is and you're trying to explain it to them while you're in the middle of this. I had an EMT this last time that didn't believe believe me. Wow. I've been on this train before, you know, like I know where this is headed and I'm trying to prevent getting to the point where like, I can't breathe. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. During a CT scan, I react to CT contrast. contrast. Yeah. Yeah. And my airway started to close and I started to panic, but I'm literally on a table about to go into a CT scan with doctors around me and they immediately inject me with Benadryl or yep. whatever it was that they had on hand. Yeah. Um, I had the same experience. Yeah. yeah. They were there with like that with, with a Benadryl IV and yeah. Yeah. So I got like a little baby dose of, you know, I, I might have gone into anaphylaxis if that hadn't, if I hadn't been right there, although I probably wouldn't be injecting myself with CT contrast for fun at home. But, you know, <laughs> I got a little bit of that sense of like, oh, my God, my airway is closing. My yeah. body, my full body is going into an absolute panic. Yeah. And like, there's nothing that I can do. It is terrifying. It's terrifying. And that is one of the symptoms a lot of times for is this, this sense of like impending doom, this like immediate of switch flips and all of a sudden it's you have the most terrifying feeling in your body you've ever had like yeah i you know obviously i was diagnosed with mast cell activation this year my listeners have heard me describe it many times but i'd love to hear your description of it like what is it you tell your friends and family when you say i have mast cell activation syndrome and they go you have what yeah uh, i mean 
it kind of depends on like how close you are to them and, and engaging like how much they really either want to know or can understand. You know, it's like at a very basic level, I just tell people like I'm allergic to everything or whatever because they don't <laughs> people don't understand like like because the thing I'm trying to prevent when I'm in a, like with people usually is an allergic reaction. So if I just tell people like what my goal is, like sometimes that's the easiest way to approach it. But, you know, when I really get into it, I explain it as mast cells are something you have everywhere in your body. They're frequently more concentrated in connective tissue and around entrances to your body because they're there to protect you, right? The major offender is histamine for me anyways, but I know there's other ones involved. And basically, your mast cells react inappropriately. They overreact, like your body's on red alert all the time. Things that mast cells that were behaving normally wouldn't react to mine freak out and react to yeah <laughs> that's kind of how i explain it my immune system is overactive and overreactive you know and then it has all of these various ways that it, it can affect m- multiple systems in your body and create all of these different symptoms and and stuff like that um is kind of how i would explain it to people as opposed to something like mastocytosis, where people that have that have too many mast cells. Mm-hmm. I have a normal amount of them, but they just are too reactive, too sensitive, too busy, too freaked out all, all the time. Yeah, it's so. like, please do less, you know? <laughs> yeah, calm down. Everybody calm down. Yeah, that's a great distinction. Mastocytosis, which uh, I don't have, which I was checked for, is the overproduction of mast cells. Yeah. and I was seeing a a hepatologist, which is a liver doctor, um, about Wilson's disease, because that was the theory we ran with for about a year, um, which I never had Wilson's disease. And it was actually like this hepatologist sort of making a mistake in thinking that I might have it. But we went down this whole rabbit hole that took about a year. I got a liver biopsy. We did the whole thing. And I stopped seeing this doctor. I went to the allergist who eventually diagnosed me with MCAS, and I wrote back to my liver doctor to say, hey, this is the diagnosis we're on to now. Do you have thoughts about this, experience with this? I did have some weird results on my liver biopsy that she couldn't explain, and I wanted to know if maybe MCAS could explain it. And her response was, we did not see an excess amount of mast cells in your liver. So from where I'm coming from, that doesn't make sense. But that's not what MCAS is. That's mastocytosis. And I'm like, okay, I'm really done with this doctor. I'm double done with this doctor because this is a very new diagnosis, MCAS, mastocytosis. This is a new area of research, mast cell dysfunction. And it was only recently that it was diagnosed for the first time. You know, when I started having symptoms, the disease wasn't even named, you know, when I started having symptoms with this. So that's just like mind blowing to think about of like living through sort of, wow, I don't have a diagnosis. My disease literally isn't diagnosable because the diagnosis doesn't even exist yet. And then having it exist and then getting diagnosed with it within my lifetime, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it's incredible. And I was actually diagnosed around the time that it became like an officially nameable thing. Wow. I I mean, honestly, I really lucked out because I had um, a GP actually diagnosed me who had had experience with it and had other patients with it. And I mean, we, we sort of went through a process of elimination, you know, like we checked me for other autoimmune conditions and like, cause, uh, cause one of the main big symptoms I was having first was all of this uh, pain and inflammation and stuff. So like they checked me for arthritis and different 
stuff <laughs> like that. And, uh, you know, the whole shebang. And in fact, she was like, you know, I really think you have muscle activation syndrome based on this, this and this. And she was like, and I'm not even going to really do the tests that they have for you because you can do all the tests and, and they can come out negative and you can still have it. Yes. Absolutely. And, and, like, and honestly, they'd have to do the blood draw while you were like in the middle of an allergic reaction for them to maybe even be able to find it. And I'm not, not going to put you through that. So like, I was really lucky. I mean, and this was like 2016. Wow. And I just happened to have this key that was like awesome and uh, like up to date on stuff. And other, and I'd never even heard of it. Like this was, not, this was not me coming to her saying like, what do you think about this? Like I had never heard of it. I had no idea what it was. I just knew something was wrong with my body and I just kept pushing her for answers and pushing and pushing and pushing. And, um, kind of like similarly to you, I can look back in my childhood and see, I think I had a genetic proclivity for this all along, but it really kicked off when I moved into a rental house that had a mold problem that I didn't know. Wow. And it was like something of switch flipped and my body started going crazy. And I was like, what is happening to me? help me figure it out to this doctor. I was like, something is wrong. How old were you then? Well, when I got diagnosed, it was probably about 34, 35. It's a little fuzzy to me exactly when it was. Yeah. <laughs> it was somewhere around there. Um, so right around 34, 35 when I got diagnosed. Um, so you had these issues and then got diagnosed pretty quickly, it sounds like. Yeah. I, I mean, I was having some other health problems before that, like I started having what I I realized now was probably endometriosis and interstitial cystitis for several years before that, starting around like 2008, 2009. So I'd I'd already kind of been living with some chronic issues. It was like the pain crept in first. And I was kind of dealing with that for a long time. It's kind of like you got to get so bad that they they can find something, you know what I mean? Like your symptoms have to get so bad that they believe you and that they can like find something. (laughs) Right. And I think honestly, it was because this doctor knew what she was talking about. Like she had actually seen it in the wild and dealt with it in some of her other patients because she wasn't even an allergist immunologist. Because funnily enough, when that doctor moved out of the area, I was like, okay, I should probably get hooked up with an allergist immunologist. And I, I went to one and she was obviously young and inexperienced and had never really dealt with mass activation syndrome because she went through the process of trying to test me and then had the gall to tell me that congratulations you don't actually have mass activation syndrome and i was like nah, i don't think so and that actually while i was under the care of that doctor was when i had that anaphylactic that first anaphylactic episode and i was so mad that's the thing. It's so new, like you said, relatively new as a diagnosis and as a kind of a known quantity that even if there are medical professionals who have heard of it, that doesn't mean that they know what it is. So you you have to like really be willing to advocate for yourself, to educate yourself, to be able to speak up and say, this is how this affects me. Because that's the thing too, it, it can affect any system in your body and it can affect everybody differently. And like you and I are a perfect example of that. Like it affects each of us a little differently, right? So you really got to like know it for yourself and how it affects you and be able to speak up for that. Because actually that first time I had anaphylaxis, I ended up in the ER at Harborview and the attending f- physician had nothing called the same. He goes, oh, I've never heard of that. And I was like, you probably shouldn't say that to a patient in the middle of an emergency. <laughs> <laughs> like, like maybe just go Google it and then come back. 
thankfully the the resident that was actually attending me she knew what it was bless her and she was very attentive but that's the thing you can come across people who should be be experts even that don't know how to handle it very well so i'm not saying don't trust anybody but at the same time like hold a grain of salt for the fact that even if somebody's heard of it that's a medical professional they might not know what to do with it it's such a great point. I, I completely co-sign everything you're saying here, especially this thing about like, oh, you can run a blood test and it'll be normal. And then your doctor can tell you, oh, you don't have this disease when in fact you just, you know, didn't test at the right time. Or maybe the one chemical mediator that they're testing for, be it histamine or tryptase, might yeah. not be the one that your mast cells are releasing because there's over a thousand chemicals that mast cells yeah. can release. Yeah. Or if the lab mishandles the sample or... Oh, yeah, Totally. I just yeah. retested my tryptase twice, really hoping to catch it, and it's still coming back normal. But I'm so lucky that my MCAS doctor is like, don't ch- change anything. You still have MCAS, even if this comes back normal. It's great if we can catch it. That, you know, lends credence to the diagnosis. But the diagnosis is just, you know, our best guess based off of your symptoms and the fact that, you know, for me personally, the huge difference I've seen going on the medication, that's the biggest test. And I just listened to a podcast this morning about histamine intolerance that uh, a listener sent my way. And it was great. And he was talking about the only way we have to test for histamine intolerance is to try going on the low histamine diet and see what happens. It's the only way. There is no real test for it. And for MCAS, there are a couple of tests. And if you can get a positive result, then you should throw a party or, you know, enter the lottery because you got real lucky. Um, But if you get a negative result, you still kind of have to, if you suspect MCAS, you still kind of have to go through the process of trying the low histamine diet, trying the protocol, which leads me to my next question. When you were first diagnosed, what protocol did your doctor put you on and did it make a difference? Yeah. So it was, she did. So actually the, the clinic I was at at the time was right next to the Seattle arthritis clinic where this nutritionist that I now work with was actually working. Mm. And so she was like, I'm going to send you across the hall to go work with this gal. So that's how I originally met her and, you know, worked with her. And she did put me on this low histamine protocol pretty strictly for a few weeks to see kind of how my body reacted. And it was pretty incredible. I, I wasn't as sick then. So I think it had an even more dramatic effect because there was less symptomology that I was battling Mm. than I am now. Things got a lot better. I actually lost a bunch of weight, like just like inflammation was decreasing. So that was a pretty clear indication that that was a good direction to go in for me. And so I, I worked with her for a while. I, I didn't see her for a couple of years. And then I started to work with the working with her again a few years ago. And um, I've been working with her ever since because it's just that piece of it, both the diet and then also supplementation to support whatever needs your body has, has been huge. It's been life-changing. And like, it's been the most practically effective thing that I've done in addition to medication. That was the thing, like, it was, was really affirming about it in a way because it was like, okay, like you said, like you're trying these medications, you're trying these protocols and they're actually working. Yeah. Like that lends credence to, okay, yes, actually my body does have this. My body is dealing with this because I'm responding to the treatments for this. Yeah. And you, know? you mentioned, you know, a potential genetic predisposition, which researchers are studying. Um, but the current research that I've looked into is that doctors believe that mast cell activation syndrome is acquired, not necessarily something you're born with. 
Um, They believe it's something that, like you said, like a switch being flipped. For you, it sounds like it was living in this moldy house, which is exactly the same as what happened to me is like I was getting mold exposure and maybe I have a predisposition that doctors will someday figure out why I had this switch turn on and no one else in my class did in second grade or when I was in high school again in a moldy high school or then, you know, after after college and I was living in a house that had a mold problem. These are the moments in my life where I got really sick and then it just stopped going away. It just like turned on yeah. all the time eventually. Well, I went to an, el- an elementary school too that didn't have the best ventilation system and I did get really sick in yeah. uh, third, third grade. I had bronchitis for like wow. a month. Wow. So it's like I, there are some things along the way where I'm like, yeah, it probably wasn't great. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I did get sick a lot in high school too. Like, so there's things like that. And I do have sort of a history in my family of like severe allergies and stuff like that. So I, yeah. you know, and I, I have a pretty heavy German ethnic uh, background in my family history. And I, I read um, that as much as even 14% of people in Germany have mass activation syndrome i don't know if that's true or not but there is some weird genetic component there that could be contributing but yeah for me it was definitely that uh mold exposure i was also to be fair i was under in a really stressful situation at the time and i've also had some trauma some sort of complex years-long trauma that i think has definitely contributed to the, the the load on my my body and my nervous system and and everything that does not help in the healing process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. yeah and there's so. there's theories absolutely that it, like long-term stressors can sort of send your body into this dysregulated state. I even re- listened to another podcast about how our indoor lifestyles might be affecting our mast cells because mm-hmm. we're not evolved to be inside all day. Um, yeah. And, you know, indoor air quality is nowhere oh, near okay. as clean as the outdoor air quality yeah. although that really depends on where you live like you know this is a whole long story but we just don't know yet we don't quite understand yet exactly what's happening but like yeah. once that switch is flipped you have to learn how to deal with it so exactly. I, i'm really curious to hear about your protocol um just you know this is a selfish curiosity because i'm still you've been diagnosed so much longer than me i'm still trying to iron out the details and get myself back to a place of as much stability as I can. So, you know, low histamine diet, I've got that on lock. <laughs> I'm still, I'm eating that way long-term. Is that a long-term thing for you? Or were you able to get off of that diet because of supplementation? No, well, no, uh, yes and no. No, I've been on, I've been on a low histamine diet for years. Okay. Um, and especially after that 2020 anaphylactic incident, I've had some others since then, but Ever since that one, I had to be pretty strict because my body was just so reactive, like yeah. just smell of anything. Like even I was just, everything was like an assault. Like my body was just freaking out all the time. Low histamine diet. And then also figuring out that piece, that oxalate piece and the sulfur piece for me mm. too was really helpful. How did you figure that out? Well, it was basically going to my nutritionist and I mean, like I'm having these symptoms and sort of like correlating it with, I think it might, some of it I could tell, like I eat this and this happens. And so I was able to tell her that. And she's like, oh, okay, well, I definitely think it's the soul. These foods are really high in sulfur. And also like when it's a sulfur reaction for me, it's almost like it feels kind of like I'm burning or like I'm breathing fire or like there's this, it feels sulfuric, you know, it's like mm. my body is, <laughs> you know, um, and then like with oxygen, 
oxalates though, I ended up actually having problems with it irritating my kidneys. And actually it can create pain too, because these oxalate crystals that your body is supposed to basically digest and then eliminate can get stuck in your body basically. And, and just sort of hang out if they're not being uh, sort of digested and processed properly. It was a huge process of elimination, but like I finally just more recently figured out like the right level of supplementation for my body to be able to deal with that. So it was like when I wasn't there yet, there was a lot of foods I couldn't eat. And then more recently, like I'm able to eat them all again, you know, as long as I take those supplements, I'm, I'm good. What What are the supplements? Yeah. Okay. So for the sulfur issue, because part of what it is, is like the mast cells can affect your liver, right? And your liver's ability to do its job and detoxify and process those, those compounds and things. Um, and so I take molybdenum. I have no idea what that is. Yeah. Molybdenum. I call it in my brain so that I remember how to spell it. It's like Molly B denim. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I remember it. <clears throat> I take molybdenum. And that really helps with the sulfur stuff. And sometimes if I feel like I'm maybe flaring up a little bit with that, that I'll just take a little more and kind of get myself back on track. And then for the oxalate piece, it's electrolytes, honestly. And I, I take a lot of electrolytes anyways, because of the postural orthostatic tachycardia. Yeah. But when I backed off on that, I started having a lot more problems with oxalates again. And somehow we were able to put two and two together. And now I just regularly make sure I'm getting enough electrolytes and I don't have a problem. <laughs> wow, so. this is fascinating. So you've gone like a, a whole level beyond the low histamine diet into this yeah. like really granular specificity that I'm just unfamiliar with. And I mean, I, you know, we live in the same city, so this makes me want to see your nutritionist because I've been fantastic. I will give her yeah. your details. She only sees people virtually. So it's really easy to yeah. have an appointment with her. She spends a lot of time with you. Like her, like, um, a co initial consult is like an hour and a half or something. Wow. And then each just regular appointment is an hour is like an hour. Yeah, because figuring out the low histamine diet on my own has been so hard. I feel like I've got it down yeah. at this point. And also, like, yeah. you know, my body will just tell me, hey, you ate the wrong thing because right. I'm in full body pain and yes. I can't stay on my feet and I start twitching and, you know, but brain fog really and stuff. that's a really hard way to learn. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Yeah, it's been really, really yeah. difficult. I think that's the thing people don't get. They're like, it's not that I just eat something and I feel sick for an hour. It's like I eat something and I feel sick for for a week like it's you don't people don't understand like yeah that ha whatever you ate has to go through your body and digest and be processed and eliminated before it can even start to recover from the thing you ate that set you off like sure. so yeah um, but yeah this this nutrition she's amazing i will get you her details um and i take other supplements too like kind of depending on what i'm dealing with or what my symptoms are she'll and she'll have me get my blood tested too, just to, to see like, okay, where are your B vitamin levels at? Where yeah. It's so at, important. You know? Nutritional deficiencies when you have this many uh, dietary restrictions is a huge concern for mm -hmm. sure. So I'm just, I'm trying to remember, I, I read this book a while back uh, about the Walls diet, Terry Walls, back before I had a diagnosis, one of my old doctors recommended this. And she was talking about sulfuric vegetables and I think if I'm remembering correctly, there's like greens, certain greens and like garlic is really high in sulfur. Yeah. Is that is that right? Is that sort of like the general thing that you're having to avoid? 
Well, I, I, I like other people with muscle activation syndrome that I have encountered. I can't do garlic or onions anymore. Like that's something like I have had an allergic reaction to the smell of onions. Wow. Like that's the level of can't do that, that I'm at. Like, um, but I can do other high sulfur things. Like I eat a lot of cabbage that's pretty high in sulfur. Like all, all the cruciferous vegetables, like cabbage and broccoli and Brussels sprouts and those things, those are pretty high in sulfur, but your body also needs sulfur. So it's like, you can't not eat it, you know, you yeah. do need it, but you yeah. have to be able to support your body to be able to process it effectively. And that's what I was having a hard time with. Okay. Yeah. And then the other, um, the one that you take the electrolytes for, what was that again? Oxalates. Oxalates. What what yeah. foods are high in oxalates? So like a lot of legumes. So like chickpeas, um, pinto, like beans. Oh yeah, um, I can't have any of that stuff. That well, that's also like higher in uh, histamine as well. All, all the, the beans and legumes. It depends. It de- kind oh, of really? depends. Yeah, that's the thing too. I found like. I'm, I'm not knocking anything you're trying or knocking any of the stuff that you've read, but I found a lot of conflicting yeah. uh, information on the internet about low histamine diet because sure. something, something will be on one person's list, but not on the other. And one piece of person will say, this is great. And then and the other person will say, it's not great. Um, that's why I really value working with this nutritionist. Cause I feel like I'm getting good solid. <laughs> and then also, like you said, if it doesn't work for your body, even if it's supposed to be okay, it doesn't work for your body. Exactly. Yeah. And then that's a piece of information that you can go, okay, but why isn't it working and what can I do about it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So oxalates, there's like some root vegetables, like carrot. Um, it kind of depends too on whether it's raw or cooked mm. sometimes. So like, uh, like raw carrots or like beets, stuff like that. Some so- soy ri- uh, rice, actually. That's what's coming to mind at the moment. Yeah, you're describing things that are very heavy in my diet, things that I've yeah. like gone through the elimination process and been like, okay, broccoli, carrots, rice, these are things that are great for me. Cabbage, um, that those yeah. are vegetables that I always get. But yeah. you know, for me, it's like more it's more the histamine that we know of that is right. the problem. Yeah. So it's like if oxalates aren't an issue for you, then that's yeah. totally you know, it's totally fine. Totally. Um and also like I also have a um I also have a latex allergy. Mm-hmm. And there's certain foods that I'm not that I'm not supposed to eat because they can cross react with a latex allergy. So like wow. wheat, I don't eat wheat. Yeah. And I don't eat certain like stone fruits or tropical fruits, like or tomatoes or stuff like that. And also some of those are high histamines. Like tomatoes right. are high histamine and they're a latex food. So it <laughs> bananas, think different things. So it's like my diet's a little even a little different from a low histamine diet, too, because there's these latex foods that I don't eat either so even though some of them are high histamine like strawberries and tomatoes there are other things on that latex list that technically aren't on the high histamine list so just like the disease itself i think in some aspects of it can be very personal absolutely that's also why a lot of the the lists out there of low histamine foods contradict each other because Mm -hmm. it is actually different for different people yeah and you know like there are some things that are higher histamine that I am able to eat, which I'm so grateful for. Like eggs is one that I've yeah, been okay with. Yeah, I eat with. eggs all the time. Thank God. Yeah. That's also high in sulfur. Eggs are high in sulfur. Oh yeah. That was one of the biggest breakthroughs for me was eggs. Fine. I, yeah. I made a, a TikTok about this recently, but I found a green tea that I can drink because it's not oh, fermented and it's yeah. just like absolute pure I joy every day. I name from you because I don't yeah. drink tea anymore. I drink 
rooibos tea because it's the closest, like an actual tea. And then I just add my own caffeine. Like I get caffeine capsules and I empty them okay. into it. <laughs> yeah, I can't <laughs> do. I, get around it. I, I can't do caffeine unless it's in very small amounts. And like the caffeine and green tea has always been okay for me. I've yeah. I've never been great with caffeine. I worked at Starbucks for a while. And I was drinking so much me coffee too. and I got really sick <laughs> at yeah, the end too. of it. It's like yeah. I got to get out of here. But uh, yeah, this green tea. I actually made a Amazon shopping list that's at like amazon.com slash shop slash major pain podcast where okay. I've put up this tea and a bunch okay. of the stuff that I take for MCAS as well. Um, I'd be so curious to like kind of cross reference our lists. Are there supplements that you're taking every day for MCAS? Yeah, I take like, a oh, lot of pills. Yeah, me too. Fulls of pills every day. Yeah. So as far as, do you want me to break, break them down for you? Yeah, let's go prescription first and then, and okay. then um, like naturopathic. Can you get my medicine bag really quick so I don't forget? Yes, <laughs> please. Okay, I got it. Like I literally have a bag full of yeah. stuff. So, and I, I just don't want to forget anything. So, okay. So prescription first. So I, I heard that you take this too, but I do take chromo and sodium. Yep, that is the most familiar looking bag in the world right there. <laughs> yeah, I take uh, two ampules four times a day. Yeah, so do I. That's like the first line of defense from my understanding. And yeah. like, it took me months to get up to the full dose. I had to start with one ampule, which is like one eighth of what I take now. Right, um, right. And it took me months to get up to the full dose because yeah. I had a really bizarre worsening of my symptoms at yeah, first. But then it just got better and better. And then I got way more solid when I got up to the full dose and I've been, I've been at that dose ever since. Yeah. I've been on it for a few, several years now. I know I'm sure that they sort of titrated me up on it. I don't remember at what rate, or I don't remember having a bad, like a reaction like that. Some things I have though, that it's taken me a lot longer to like work my way up to. <laughs> full <Yeah>. dose. <laughs> and I wasn't one of them, thankfully, but I also put these in a bag because I'm always afraid that in the event of an emergency and I need to like leave my house quickly, like a fire, I'm like, I need these medications. Wow. So I put them in a bag so that if I ever have to like bug out, I can just grab it. That's so smart. Because that's the way my brain works. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So as far as every day, I take compounded levocetirazine. That was the thing that I, I do have to get some of my medications compounded and it's the ones that are actually things you can get over the counter because I react to some of the additives in over the counter medication. Yeah. The first time I had anaphylaxis was to an over the counter medication. I still to this day don't know what was the additive in it that I reacted to, but yeah. ever since then I'm like, let's, let's not find out. Let's not play Russian roulette with that. Yeah. That's something yeah. that's so tough. Pauline said that on our, uh, uh, earlier MCAS episode, I feel so lucky that I don't have to deal with that. Like I can just buy fexofenadine anywhere and it's been fine for me. That's great. I, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Love that for oh, you. What was the name of this medication again? I haven't heard of this one. Levocetirazine. So it's basically like the compounded version of cetirazine, which is, um, I can't even remember which ones. That's an antihistamine, right? It's an antihistamine. So is that Claritin? One? Uh, it, no, it's what's the other one? Zyrtec. Oh, it's Zyrtec. Okay. Yeah. So this one's an H1 yeah. blocker because, as you, I'm sure you're aware, there's H1 and H2. Yeah. And then I also take famotidine. Yep, me too. Famotidine, which is um, Pepsid. Pepsid. Thank you. Originally, I took ranitidine before it got pulled off the market because that oh. was 
Yeah, that one was, what was that one? Zan- was it Zantac that was renitidine? There was one that all of a sudden there were like, there's some study that says this might cause cancer. And then like everyone freaked out and they pulled it off all the shelves and you couldn't get it at the pharmacy anymore. And it's never come back. So famotidine is what I got switched to. So, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that famotidine or pepsid, which is yeah. usually used for stomach acid, right. is actually right. an H2 exactly. antihistamine. Exactly. It's really interesting when you start learning all this stuff. So, yeah. And then also, I take Montelukast, which Me is for it's a mast cell stabilizer. And then I actually just within the last several months have started taking low dose naltrexone. Oh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, do it. Okay, yeah. this is. I'm so glad you're local because I don't know where to get it. Do you? Yeah. You must have a doctor who's sending this to a compounding pharmacy. Yeah, I okay. do. I can recommend. I I use a compounding pharmacy that's in Bellevue, even though there's one that's closer to me because the 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 tricky one to get compounded at a rate that's not exorbitant is i think it's the levocetirazine there's one of them that like some of them don't do because it's expensive and if they don't have enough people getting it from them then it like it's exorbitant so but i found this one uh compounding pharmacy in bellevue they've been great and they will mail it to my house so i don't have to drive there and get it so i can totally get hooked up with them so i they they do all my compounded stuff i do have some other prescription meds that I just take the prescription med. It's not compounded. I'm so curious about low-dose naltrexone for MCAS. Has that been helpful? It has. I'm at the point now where I think I need to up my dosage because I feel like I've had a plateau of sort of helpful effectiveness. Um, But when I started, I like slowly the doctor i was seeing for it's just slowly had me titrate up little by little by little by little but i really started noticing a big improvement in my fatigue and my pain and like i had more energy it it was really amazing what dosage are you at now the one i'm at now is like on the low end of the normal um it's 1.5 milligrams you can go up to like four and still have it be low dose yeah I've been kind of in a flare since December and I've kind of am feeling like uh, my flare outstripped the effectiveness of the dosage. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like I, I wasn't flared up when I started taking it and it was making me feel pretty good. And then now that I'm flared up, I was like, I, I think I need more. <laughs> yeah, totally. There's, there's yeah. two um, prescription meds you haven't mentioned that I take, which are uh, Ketodafen, which is also a mast cell stabilizer. It's not yeah. even av- available in the US. Yeah, I know. I, I haven't yeah. tried that one yet just because it's kind of tricky to get a hold of. Yeah. So the tip that I got for that was to go to Canada Drugs Online yeah. and they order it or you can compound it as well. But mine is ordered from India. It's like produced in India. And then I, I get like three months at a time. Mm-hmm. And I tried going off of that. Well, not off of it. I tried to go lower on my dose recently. I take yeah. three pills a day. And I just got worse and I went yeah, back up to three pills like, a day. No, <laughs> yeah. So I, I really feel like Ketodafen is helping. I also take Metoprolol, which is a beta blocker because oh. I have some high heart rate issues. I don't have POTS, but I do have small fiber neuropathy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've barely even touched on, on this stuff today. But things that can be common with mast cell activation is some sort of dysautonomia, dysregulation of mm-hmm. your autonomic nervous system. So for me, with high heart rate, and I also have a periodic arrhythmia. The metoprolol seems to help with that. And I take half a pill in the morning, half a pill at night. And I, I, 
I've tried going off of that many times and keep coming back to it because it does seem to really help. I haven't quite totally ventured into that. That's kind of another story for me, but it's something I'm interested in looking a little bit more into. Um, I do have a couple other prescriptions that I take sort of more periodically. Yeah. One is hydroxyzine. That's an antihistamine, an H1 blocker that I just kind of have as backup. It's also an antihistamine that's sometimes prescribed for anxiety because it's the only one that crosses the blood-brain barrier. And so sometimes for me, especially if I'm having um, kind of psychological or neurological symptoms that I know are coming from a mast cell release, like if I'm having sort of inexplicable anxiety or, you know, something like that, this this one can be really helpful for something like that. Yeah, I've never tried that. That's a great tip. Yeah. Um, so that one's good. And also I find it doesn't hit me with drowsiness quite as much usually as say Benadryl does. Benadryl is magic. And I actually have built up a pretty good tolerance to being on it and still being functional. Um, you know, unlike people who maybe just take it once in a while. But um, so I do take Benadryl sometimes too, just kind of depending on what I've got going on. Benadryl is my like, I I have to cheat on my low histamine diet for one reason or another, taking yeah. a Benadryl proactively really helps with that. I mean, even up to the point where I can have like a couple drinks of alcohol if I've taken a Benadryl, but yeah. there, like Benadryl long-term, there are some really intense dangers. So it's something that I try to take as little as possible, but it, you know, I think for everyone with MCAS, Benadryl is like what you've got in your back pocket just in case. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Benadryl. And then I also just as a like a prevent, this was this is the thing that's kept me from having to go back to the ER with when I have an anaphylactic reaction is having prednisone on hand. To oh, take. wow. Yeah. Prednisone. Yeah. Yeah. Because after I had this last anaphylactic incident, when I went to the ER, which was in um, like end of August 2022, I was like, what can I do to not ever have to do this again? <laughs> um, but I also had, had been learning from some other people with MCAS on Instagram, things that they did. And this one gal talked about having an emergency protocol. So I went to my, my allergist immunologist and I was like, what is this? How do I do this? What, what does this look like? And she actually printed out a sheet for me from the mast cell, like mast cell cytosis society that shows this like, this patient has this, they, if you're going to do surgery or some kind of procedure, you should do this, this, and this. Or if they're having anaphylaxis, do this, this, and this, like, don't give them this medication, stuff like that. And also, I use that protocol before I have, like, dental work or something that I know is going to be a trauma to my body that Mm. might flare things up or cause anaphylaxis or something. And part of that is prednisone. And so the last time I actually had uh, what I knew was an anaphylactic reaction to um, actually a medication, I've had a real hard time with antibiotics. Since I've been sick with mast cell, every time I've taken an antibiotic in the last couple of years, I have an anaphylactic reaction to it. Wow. Which is sort of scary to think. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if I get an infection? What like what, <laughs> what am I going to do? Um, so, uh, actually the last time it happened, I was trying some eardrops cause I was having a problem with one of my ears. And as soon as I did the drops, it was like something switch flipped and I was flooded with this terror. And I started down what I know my symptoms are going down like the anaphylaxis train. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh. And thankfully I like downed a bunch of Benadryl and I took this prednisone and and it's, it, I mean, it's still a white knuckle ride until your body like 
calms down and the medication does its job fully, but it kept me from having to take Epi and having to go to the ER. Yeah. And that's funny because prednisone and Benadryl is my pre-medication that I take now to avoid reacting to CT contrast. Yes. So that is a potent combination. Prednisone is a steroidal anti-inflammatory. A lot of people have taken non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen, Aleve, naproxen, Advil, Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. But yeah, prednisone is sort of like the hardcore version of the anti-inflammatory. And it has a lot of, again, negative health effects if you take it long term. But taking it every once in a while as an emergency measure makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it is what they give you after you've had anaphylaxis too. Right. It's what they give you to help stop it. And then they'll give it to you to keep it from happening again for several days afterwards. They'll give you one of those packs that's like for six days or whatever. Um, And so I was like, well, what if I just take it before so it doesn't happen? (laughs) Or like, like I said, having it on hand has been a real game changer for me. Awesome. Is that the prescription meds? Prescription meds. Okay. Yeah. What about supplements? supplements, Okay. Um, So we've talked about molybdenum. So I take that every day uh, in the morning. Uh, The big chunk of stuff I take is in the morning. I do take stuff at night too, but I also take um, just regularly. This is part of my electrolyte protocol, which is the Vitassium electrolyte pills, which a lot of people Mm. with POTS are familiar with because that's like a good uh, supplement to take. Uh, So this one has um, sodium chloride and potassium citrate in it. And then I also do sodium bicarbonate and water at lunchtime. This is another one. And then I also like, I drink a lot of water every day. I also put, will put electrolytes in my water that I'm just drinking too. I do supplement with zinc and I have this methylcobalamin, which is B12. And then a couple times a week, I also take this P5, P50, which is B6. That's the thing too. My nutritionist will help me find the right version of things because sometimes yeah. there's versions of certain vitamins and things. And then this has been photamine, which I think is B1, if I remember correctly. I also take D3 with vitamin K. And then this is uh, CoQ10. And then this one, I was always going to tell you, this was actually the first thing I ever tried was quercetin. Quercetin, yeah. Methyl stabilizer. Yeah. That was the very first thing my doctor put me on before anything else. So I've been taking it for years. And actually about a year ago, I was like, I've been taking this for years and I'm not really sure if it's doing anything or if I'm just taking it. So I backed off on it for a little while and started developing asthma symptoms. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. So it was doing something. Good to know. I I ran out of quercetin and forgot to reorder it in time recently. And same thing, like just starts to get worse. And then I get it back, go back on it, get better. I take the uh, bioavailable quercetin made by, I think, Natural Factors. I've tried a bunch of different brands, but Natural Factors makes a couple of like bioavailable products where the dosage is lower, but they claim that the the benefit is higher. For me, I'm like, I I love that. That sounds great. So I do that for my quercetin and for my um, turmeric or curcumin. That's like a naturopathic anti-inflammatory that I use. And I've had really good results with both. Absolutely. That's awesome. And then I also do lysine, which is an amino acid. Mm. And then I do have some compounded acetaminophen that I have as needed. I did just realize this, this is a huge breakthrough for me. <laughs> Only someone with mass activation will understand why. But I just realized that I can take dye-free uh, Motrin ibuprofen 
I hadn't taken anything else but acetaminophen for years because I was so terrified to try over-the-counter medication. And sometimes, sometimes I've read that people with mass activations don't always do well with ibuprofen. And I was like, I don't know. But then I found that there was a dye-free version and I just tried it recently. And I'm like, thank God <laughs> ah, I can take wow. it. Because uh, compounded acetaminophen is expensive. I also take tyrosine, which is a form of it's a thyroid medication that comes in a gel capsule and doesn't have any additives in it. That one, actually, I have to order from a pharmacy in, in uh, Mississippi. <laughs> so I understand the whole like uh, ordering things from, from far away to get what you need. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I take a couple of other supplements that you haven't mentioned, but I don't feel like it's, you know, we have different needs. We've gone different routes. Right. The only one that I want to bring up that you haven't brought up yet is the DAO enzyme, D-A-O. Is that yeah. something you've tried? I've heard of it and and then like, you know, and why, why it's supposed to be good and why it's supposed to work. It's, it's not quite one that I've ever gotten on, even though I've thought about it. I think in working with my nutritionist, sometimes like we have specific goals that we mm -hmm. want to tackle first and specific nutritional needs that I'm having. And so I think we just haven't quite gotten to that one, but I am really interested in it and wondering if it would be good. Sometimes too, my nutritionist can tell like, I don't think your body's quite ready to take on this new thing yet. Yeah. You know, sometimes we'll try something and my body's just like, mm, mm, not yet. Thank you. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe later, but now it's not a good time. Um, so I, I haven't really tried that one. I totally get that though. That's what I'm like with, you know, low dose naltrexone is like, I'm doing one thing at a time and I can't really handle more. Yes. And I'm, I'm still just like working on these things and I really want to do it, but I'm not there yet. And sometimes it takes years to get there. Yeah. Um, but that's one that I really like. Dow enzyme is the enzyme that breaks down histamine. And I noticed a really big difference when I went on it. Um, and again, the version that I take is in my Amazon shop. If anyone wants to check it out, mm -hmm. there's a couple of different sources of Dow enzyme. Again, I listened to this podcast about histamine intolerance. I just finished it today. Thank you, Jen, for sending it my way. But I listened to this uh, podcast episode. They were talking about Dow enzyme. There's two different sources of it. One, I think, is pig's kidneys. And then the other one is actually sprouted legumes. So I think mm -hmm. that the one that I'm taking now is the sprouted legume version. I've tried. They, this company makes both, I believe. But, you right. know, I feel like if I can get it from a plant-based source, that's great. Right. And then they were talking about how you can actually eat like sprouted legumes. Sprouted peas, I think they said, had the highest amount of Dow enzyme. But mm -hmm. I don't eat peas because they're, you know, legumes are generally higher histamine, which I'm really interested to hear. Yeah. yeah, I'm interested to hear you talk about that earlier. And it's making me reconsider like, well, I maybe should try the like, beans again. But is there like specific specific preparation of beans? Like if you get it canned, it might be higher histamine than if you get them dried. Right. Like what's the story there? Yeah. Well, it's funny for me too, just sort of from my background, I grew up kind of mostly vegetarian. We did eat meat occasionally, but it wasn't like, it wasn't kind of a typical American diet that has meat every day or, you know, something like that. So I'm the kind of person where like, just naturally my proclivity is not to eat a lot of meat. Yeah. I've had to eat more meat now because my diet is so limited that I need I need those sources of protein and amino acids and stuff like that. And especially when things like legumes have been kind of on my no list, you know, I've kind of had to find that balance. But um, when I do eat them, obviously, anytime you're eating any food, regardless of what it is, whether it's 
low histamine or not, the older something is, the yeah. higher histamine it is. Yeah. So is something that you can get that's the fresh as possible is usually better. Um, I actually eat a lot of, God bless my mom. I have to say my secret weapon is my mom. <laughs> she helps me with food a lot. And she has all my entire life. She's always been into canning stuff. And she will can beans, she'll can chickpeas, she'll can meat for me. Like that's been a big thing for me because I seem to be able to eat and digest and handle canned um, meat and canned foods better. And also then it's like, I know it's the meat, like I don't eat leftovers that are older than a day or two, usually, especially if it's meat, because that tends to be higher histamine anyways. Um, so I find that having a, like basically like a can of chickpeas or a can of beef or something is a lot easier for me to just throw in and have it be like what I call Marisa friendly mm. <laughs> and preparing something and having leftovers or having it sit out, you know, or I freeze stuff a lot too. So maybe I make up a bunch of rice say, or something or a soup. I, I will freeze it. I'll eat, I'll eat what I need then. But then I'll freeze the rest of it so that it, it's it delays that histamine, that aging process of yeah. that food. And that's made a big difference too. Um, as far as like beans and legumes, um, I don't know if I've noticed a huge difference between, say, preparing it from the dried beans that you get. Because I mean, that's what, what we're canning. My mom's canning is she's getting dried, the dried version and then canning it. Um, but I think there's something for me about the canning process that kind of breaks things down a little bit, but then it also like puts it in stasis, right? This mm. canned food is, it's not really aging. It's in stasis until I open it up and make something out of it. Can you buy canned beans from the store and be okay? Or does it need to be your mom's canned beans? That's a good question. I know I've been okay with some canned things from the store. Like I've done canned corn and like canned artichoke hearts and some things like that. I have done canned beans before and it's been okay. Wow. Um, this is shocking yeah. to me. This is huge news. But again, yeah. it's different for everyone. Like I, I, you know, I could try a can of corn and get super sick. So it, yeah, yeah. it just really depends you on the person. Know. And sometimes it's like, I, I'm just saying this to be encouraging. You may sometimes may think it's a histamine thing but maybe it's oxalates or maybe it's something else about the food that you're reacting to that yeah. you're not quite sure what it is yet so maybe it could be that you find out maybe it's not a histamine thing but maybe it's an oxalate thing and then there's something you can do to help you get to the place where you can eat that food again yeah so, i mean that is the one encouraging thing is when you're able to work with somebody like this nutritionist and kind of figure out like what's the key to your body What's the key to your diet? What's, what is it that you need that can maybe help you eat these things again? Cause I did, I, I have gone through phases where I couldn't eat them at all. I couldn't eat beans. I couldn't eat chickpeas. And now that I have kind of dialed this in with my diet, my nutritionist, I'm able to eat them again, which is great. Wow. Especially since, like I said, I kind of prefer to eat more plant-based. That's so cool. So exciting. I'm curious, you know, how do you feel about having mast cell activation syndrome? The one huge difference in your story from mine is that you've known what you've had for a long time and you didn't really go through that period of being undiagnosed. You know, I, w I went undiagnosed until I was 38 years old and yeah. I just like never thought I'd ever get better because I didn't know what to do. But then once you get diagnosed, then you start down this journey of like, wow, this disease is real frustrating. You know, 
what works for one person doesn't work for me. I got to try all these things every time I eat the wrong thing or breathe in the wrong thing or walk in the wrong room. All of a sudden, I'm sick for days at a time. That journey is really frustrating. And you're way further on that journey than I am because it took me so long to get that diagnosis. So, you know, at your point of having this disease, how do you feel about it? I will say that even with the diagnosis, the journey is much the same. It's Mm. helpful to know what you have so that you maybe have a better idea of what direction might be helpful, but it's still a lot of trial and error. It's still a lot of pain and suffering. It's still a lot of figuring out what your body's doing, what it's not doing, what you need, what it doesn't need, what's okay today, what's not okay today, and it changes. You know, there's things that I used to be able to do that I can't do anymore. I used to be able to drink alcohol. I can't do that anymore. I used to be able to do a lot of things that I can't do anymore. I'm so, so glad for you to have a diagnosis because it is so, so helpful. And like I said, it's like a sign pointing you in the direction you need to like go. But it's still such a everyday variable disease that it really sucks a lot of the time. It's really painful. People don't understand what it is. They don't always understand what you're dealing with. You could look totally normal and feel miserable, you know, or there's things that you can't say yes to because you know it could make you sick or because you already are sick and it could make you worse or whatever it is. And also, as we said toward the beginning, it's still kind of a lonely road because you don't always meet people who have even heard of it. It's not like you can go to somebody and say, I have rheumatoid arthritis and everybody kind of has a general idea of of what that is, or I have diabetes, or I have, you know, these things that are are much better, better known. I mean, I did go through a period of trial and error. And there are still some things that I'm living with that I haven't technically been diagnosed with, right. um, like endometriosis and stuff like that. And the nerve pain. I mean, we, you know, there's stuff yeah. we're just not going to have time to get to today because it's just yeah. so complicated. It's a lot. But, yeah. we, can, we can talk more, but it, it yeah. is a lot. So it's like, it's just, it sucks. And for me, Like I said, that one anaphylactic incident that was sort of the turning point coincided with the COVID lockdowns, but I've basically gone into lockdown and never come out. Yeah. I live basically in my house most of the time. I go out for doctor's appointments if I have to go in person. If I don't have to go in person, I try to do virtual because I don't want to expose myself. Um, Not just to COVID, but it's like when I go in public, there's smells there's fragrances there's pollen there's you know all kinds of things that can be triggering so it's like it's it's hard especially when before it's like i used to go out all the time i used to go out with friends i used to go do this that and the other thing and it was okay or i had to be a little bit careful about this one thing you know but it's just totally changed my life it is kind of a good jerk meter because it's (laughs) like you find out real quick who actually cares about you and who's actually interested in understanding where you're at and what you're going through and you know who actually has the patience for that and who doesn't and that's hard too because sometimes you find things out about people that you didn't want to know about them but it's probably better that you do <laughs> <laughs> you know in the long run it's probably better that you know that they're like that but um but it can be hard so you know i've i've learned you know, who my supporters are, who my friends really are, you know, the people who really care and who like, I have a friend who's coming to see me tomorrow, and we're going to be outside and visit outside masked and 
she's all like, what do you need me to do? How many times do you want me to test before I come? Cause she was traveling recently. And, and like, she's very much about asking me what accommodations I need. And like, not everybody's like that, you know, not everybody thinks those ways. Um, you know, and I actually have found a lot of community through, I, I, um, it was in person before the pandemic started, but is virtual now support uh, chronic illness support group through the center for chronic illness. And they have virtual support groups for anybody. Like it doesn't just have to be local people. Like they have virtual classes for anybody that can be on the internet, like for different various illnesses and different things, but finding people there, like, and even encountering other people that have my disease, that's been really huge because you're with this group of people that, like understand where you're coming from and you you don't have to explain it because they know, you know, they know where you're coming from. So it, even with the diagnosis, it's, this is hard. It's hard. Well, you're giving me that experience today of like being able to talk to a friend who has my disease, which is really still, you know, like I said, in the beginning of the conversation, it's a little overwhelming for me because I'm just I'm still yeah. not used to it, even though it, with through this podcast, it is starting to happen a lot. Yeah. But, but again, I've I've known you for like ten years, and when we met, neither of us were diagnosed at that point. I think, yeah. um, because I think it was before 2016. Yeah, I kind of had started to have some issues then that I sort of realized later played into it. But yeah, yeah like neither of us knew we didn't. Yeah, know. and I'm I moved to Seattle because I had had such a bad flare up in a moldy house in San Diego. I needed a new environment, right. so I was like in between flare ups at that point where I was doing relatively well, but I never, you know, after that flare up before moving, I never got back to a hundred percent. And then I flared up again, just real bad for like six years and just lived on the couch for six years and then got diagnosed. And now I'm starting to get out and do things again, which is incredible. But you know, chronic illness is not linear in any way. And just because you're some way today doesn't mean anything about tomorrow with mast cell activation syndrome, because you don't know what you're going to inhale. But it's really, really special for me to have you on the podcast and to like go through this whole story. I really feel like we're just scratching the surface. There's so much more I want to ask you. We're going to have to talk more. Um, You know, I, we live in the same city. There's a lot I want to ask you about, you know, your naturopath and your dietitian and stuff like that. But unfortunately I'm flaring up today and I got to lie down. I'm getting real dizzy. So I'm going to have to to wrap things up. Um, But I do want to ask you my last question, which is one of my favorite things to ask people, which is if you could travel back in time, because I'm a sci-fi nerd, if you could step through the Stargate, and and let's pretend the Stargate is also a time travel device. Well, there there are a couple episodes where they go back in time on Stargate, so I'm I'm with you on that. Absolutely. So that's the one that we're in. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself in 2016, right after getting diagnosed, what is the most important message about learning to live with mast cell activation syndrome that you would give to yourself? I would say you are not a burden. Wow. You will have a hard time and things will be hard, but you will figure it out and you are not a burden. Honestly, I would say too, just as a caveat to that, being chronically ill and all the things that I've gone through has actually been the thing that has led me to a place of the most like emotional healing and the most self-acceptance. I think it's because when you lose control of your body, you stop thinking that you can somehow fix yourself or like somehow make yourself better 
in ways that you think you should be or society tells you that you should be or you should be and like for me like I've gained a lot of weight and it's like not really having control over that too I'm like my worth and value does not go up and down with a number on a scale my worth and value has nothing to do with whether I'm sick or well I'm valuable and worthy just the way I am regardless so I think that's something I would tell myself going into it is your worth and value doesn't change because of this and you're not a burden. And there are people who love you and care about you, even though there are some jerks in your life that are going to fall away. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's really important because I think it's so easy to feel like a burden when you have to ask for help for something you never had to ask help for before. Yeah, that hits me like a ton of bricks for sure. That I was not expecting that answer. And when you said it, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> because there's so many times I felt like a burden and yeah. that's a really difficult thing to process through as a chronically ill person to need that support and to have your illness affect those that you love. Yeah. You know, again, just a whole other rabbit hole that we could go down. This has been such an incredible episode of the show. I feel like we're le leaving a lot unsaid. And I'm just thinking, like, I've known you for over 10 years. This is by far the longest conversation we've ever had, you know? <laughs> and it's just the way things work sometimes and the way things happen and just the twists and turns in life are so unexpected. But there was so many years where I was just wishing I knew anyone going through what I was going through. And here's this person who was the assistant manager of an apartment I used to live in who literally has my disease. Yeah. that I didn't even know, you know, neither of us knew at the time. Yeah, and exactly. And now here we are a decade later having the conversation and like comparing medications, which, you know, I'm sure there's people listening to the podcast who are like, I don't want to hear every medication these people take. But for me, that's like so insanely there, valuable there to be are. able to, yes. yeah, to be able important. to bounce that off of you and, and hear what you're taking, get some ideas and also like affirm some of the things that I'm taking because the core yeah. of our regimen is almost identical. So, yeah. you know, that means so much to me and it's just, you know, really, really special to be able to share this, record this, put this out on the podcast feed. You know, I'm so grateful. This is reminding me of, you know, why I do this podcast and it really means a lot to me. Please tell our listeners where they can go to connect with you online. Anything else you'd like to plug? Oh gosh. Um, I have a private Instagram account, um, <laughs> but if you want to look me up and if you're not, if I think you're, uh, okay to, to, to be friends with online, if you want to request me, um, my Instagram is, it's a little long. It's write.sing.dance.design because I'm a nerd and I can't not do all of my thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I, I kind of keep a, a, a sort of private profile online, but I wish I had some cool performing arts thing that I could plug, but I haven't performed in public since 2019. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I just want to say, I really, really, really appreciate you having me on here and having this conversation. Um, I, I know that it's helping both of us and I just really hope it helps anybody else that listens because I know how important and vital it's been for me to come across other people with this and be able to talk to them. And like you said, have that affirming conversation of I'm on the right track or yeah. just to be able to bounce things off of each other has been, been huge. So thank you so much for having me. I am so, so thankful. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncy, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.